I'm Chad Main, the founder of Legal Services Company Percipient, and this is Technically Legal, a podcast about legal technology and legal innovation. In today's episode, I'm talking to Casey Flaherty. He and I talk about how to avoid tech-first failures when you're implementing legal innovation. For our second episode in 2022, we have a repeat offender to the podcast, Casey Flaherty. He's Chief Strategy Officer for LexFusion. The first time Casey and I talked, it was four years ago, and it was only our sixth episode of Technically Legal. Casey has deep experience in legal tech and innovation, and he has it from all angles. He started his career as a commercial litigator with Holland and Knight. Then he moved in-house and was a corporate attorney for Kia Motors. From there, he launched ProCertis. It's a legal ops consultancy, but it's also an online platform to train people how to effectively use technology and assess their performance. Since the last time Casey and I talked, he's taken on a couple of other roles, including serving as Director of Legal Project Management for one of the world's largest law firms, Baker McKenzie, and also his current role at LexFusion. I asked Casey to come back on the show to talk about an article he wrote recently about why it may not always be a best practice to throw tech at a problem before addressing process and internal culture. Casey's one of my favorite writers in the industry. He just has the gift of great prose. On today's show, he and I talk a little bit about his writing process, but mainly we talk about a thesis he has developed that people might be too quick to turn to tech as an avoidance mechanism for addressing problems with process and culture. You were on the podcast four years ago. I can't believe it's been that long. You've had a couple roles since then. You were at Baker McKenzie as Director of Legal Project Management for a while. What was a day in the life like there? Well, they often started early and ended late because... Baker McKenzie is the most global firm in the world. And, you know, it had team members from Poland to Australia and Kuala Lumpur. So a lot of time zones. Overall, it was wonderful. It was a build project. There was an explicit mandate to build the biggest and best legal project management team in the world. I was fortunate enough to start with an amazing team that was already there. And we built on top of that great foundation. And I really enjoyed it. I mean, I, of course, believed in the mission, but most importantly, we had the support, not just from executives, but from the partners, from the stakeholders. And so we were able to not only build the team, but integrate the team into the way legal services were delivered. That was wonderful. It was wonderful to be part of a successful project because there's a lot of projects in this space that are not successful. So if I recall correctly, you started your career at a law firm also, right? Yeah, I was a complex commercial litigator at Holland and Knight. And then I moved in-house at Kia Motors America while I was there. I drifted over to what we're now calling legal operations. And then I went into legal operations consulting for law departments and law firms. And Baker McKenzie was one of my law firm clients. And then they brought me in to build out the LPM. What's your takeaway from working at a law firm, you know, 2019, 2020 versus your experience working at a law firm before that, early in your career, specifically as it relates to process and tech and and just the implementation of that and the use of that? In one sense, it's amazing how little has changed. In another sense, it's impressive how much has changed. And anyone who's been in this space kind of has to reconcile that tension because there is a tension. If you take a long view, quite a bit has changed, but it has not changed nearly as dramatically as people would have predicted. And, you know, pick however long ago you want. The first article I read on this topic of 
you know, the move to the multidisciplinary delivery of legal services, you know, scaling legal service delivery through process and tech, I think goes back to the the 80s. And I'm sure it was discussed before then. I just haven't read before then. Anytime I mention something, there's always someone who comes out of the woodwork and like, well, even before then, <laughs> such and such. And they're not wrong. I just wasn't there. <laughs> uh, 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 but even going back to the beginning of my career, I would have predicted, you know, a, a different vector of change. It would have been, it would have had a higher velocity and been more impactful. And yet I can't deny that there's been an enormous amount of change. So it, it depends on how you want to look at it. And on some days I'm optimistic and on some days I'm skeptical. And most days I just try and be reasonable and realistic. I fail, but I try. I think it's a good, uh, be reasonable. You know, there's the skepticism that can seep in, but all this, you know, change is based on positivity. What is it? You said some things have not changed or been slow to change. You've been doing this for a while. If you had to point one thing out that slows innovation down within legal, what is that? Having the time to do innovation. So people are so busy and genuinely busy, busy on, on important work. I don't want, I don't want to discount that uh, at all. But people are so busy that they don't have the space to innovate. It takes a lot of work to do things differently. And part of that means hitting the pause button on the important work today. And we only get more and more of the important work today, which makes it harder and harder to reserve time to put in the work to do things differently in the future. So for me, that's the fundamental tension. And you'll have people say, oh, well, that's the bill. That's the perverse incentives of the billable hour. I'm not going to stand here and defend the billable hour, but I've spent enough time in law departments and with law departments and other places where they're not compensable timesheets to know that you can't just chalk it up to the billable hour and decide that the analysis is complete. Right, right. So now you're chief strategy officer at LexFusion. Uh, for those that may not know, let's say you're stuck in an elevator with somebody. And they ask you what you do and where you work. What do you tell them that LexFusion is? I still fail at the elevator pitch. So <laughs> it, and, it, and, it, and it really depends on who they are um, because we are different things to different groups. So if you are a founder of a legal innovation company, we help you go to market. And if you are a law firm partner or a practicing lawyer in-house, we help you find ways to make your life easier. And if you're in an innovation role, at a law firm or a law department, we help you with strategy and adoption. Fundamentally, the business model is that we have a curated collection of legal innovation companies that pay us a retainer and a commission on any deal we source. And so outsource sales as the economic model is pretty digestible. And yet it's a massive oversimplification because the theory is that we don't do traditional sales and marketing. Instead, going back to my consulting days, we help people. We help them find problem solution fit. Uh, we help them based on our own personal experiences, but also what we're hearing from the market. Say per capita, we do more active market listening than anyone. I forget the exact number, but we had over 2000 meetings last year with law firms and law departments. And, and then we do a lot of market scanning. I look at a lot of tech and services that are not our members. And so people will have conversations with us and 
I might recommend one thing or I might recommend 15 things, depending on the nature of the question. And the one or 15 things may or may not include members. It's all dependent on what is top of mind, what is the need, what, um, what has problem solution fit. And the, so the theory is that by being out there and adding value, we will deepen trust and more and more people will not just ask for our help, but ask for our help again and again. And that over time, we will organically produce more opportunities for our members and frankly, better opportunities for our members um, than traditional sales and marketing. That is not an elevator pitch. That is the opposite of an elevator pitch. And like I said, it depends, depends on the audience. I did say this scenario as we were stuck in the elevator. So you had plenty of time. That's fine. That, we'll call that an elevator pitch. So I, I brought you on the podcast because as always, you, you write some great articles and you wrote one about part of the title was Tech First Failures. And I want to get into that in just a second. But before we do, you write a lot. And when you write, they're in depth. So I want to talk about your process. Like, how do you get it done? You know, you're a busy guy. You just said you had, you know, you and your company had 2,000 meetings last year. How do you find time to write? When do you find time to write? How do you do it? Yeah, I don't have any hobbies. <laughs> uh, and I'm, I'm serious. I, I am truly passionate about this. This is what I care about. A lot of my friends are in the industry. When we get together, this is what we talk about. So I really don't have much in the way of hobbies, which I know sounds sad and may, maybe it is, um, but it's the truth. But writing is a hobby. No, I don't, I don't, writing can be a hobby. It is a hobby. I love this space. I'm continually fascinated by this space and I enjoy writing and I always have. And so I'm combining two things that I, that I'm personally passionate about. And then you find the time. I mean, we all have the same amount of time. It's really a question of priorities and it's some, something that I prioritize. Oftentimes I have self-doubt about whether or not it's the right call. My partners- It is the right call. I my partners have to remind me it's value additive because I'm doing it instead of uh, writing emails. I'm doing it instead of taking more meetings for market scanning. I'm doing it instead of a million other things, all of which are valid, that I might be doing with that time. But the value too is you. This is your interest. This is your love. I mean, you, you're continuously learning. This forces you to continuously learn. So there's definitely value in that. You say you make time for it. Do you have a set schedule? Like you know, when I try to you know I try to get writing done, it's one of the first things I do in the morning, just because I know that's it's easiest sometimes. Do you have something like that, or do you just do you just write when you have free time? I write when I have free time. Although I. I do the vast majority of my writing in my head. And so a lot of my writing time is when I'm doing dishes or taking out the trash or folding laundry. So I'm always thinking about it. Then it's simply a question of when can I sit down and block off big chunks? I cannot write in small verse. Um, and so I have a good chunk of my Friday blocked off for deep work. And then I try and find two mornings a week to do it. And then frankly, on the weekends, my kids demand some downtime. They don't always want to be out and doing things. They want some screen time. And when I indulge them on that, which frankly, I do more than I like, uh, <laughs> that, that's another point where I'll find an opportunity to write. When we come back, Casey explains why it's not a good idea to implement technology before taking a step back and mapping the process you're trying to improve and making sure organizational culture is going to support the change you're trying to make. We need to do more with less. 
That is the key takeaway nowadays from almost every survey of in-house counsel. But what if it didn't have to be that way? What if you actually could do more for less? By combining legal expertise and technology, Percipient enables legal teams to get more work done for less. Buried in contracts and sales is frustrated with turnaround time? We can help with that. Did you just get hit with a subpoena and reviewing 100,000 documents and files will tax your resources or cost you a small fortune in billable hours? We can help there too. Our team of legal professionals leverage tech and project management principles with the right amount of human oversight to deliver precise, efficient, and cost-effective legal solutions. Whether it's legal operations and contract management support, subpoena compliance, or document review, Percipient is your partner in really doing more for less. Percipient, legal services powered by technology. We'll get back to my conversation with Casey Flaherty in just a second. But as I always do, I wanted to point out that at tlpodcast.com, there's going to be a dedicated page for this episode, and there's a page for all other episodes. On those episode pages, you can find more information about our guests and links to some of the stuff we talk about. For instance, there'll be a link to the article Casey and I are talking about. Also, if you want to get in touch with me to give me feedback about the podcast, suggest a guest, or learn more about what my company does, you can find me on LinkedIn or tweet at me. My handle is chad underscore main. Finally, if you haven't subscribed to Technically Legal, you can do that on pretty much any podcast platform out there. And if you're finding value in these episodes and all this great info and knowledge our guests are providing, I hope you tell a friend and maybe even give us a positive review. Okay, let's get back to my conversation with Casey Flaherty about how to avoid tech-first failures. So the article I wanted to bring you on about is about tech-first failures. And in it, you say your thesis is that we, as the legal community, legal innovators, people in in-house legal departments, law firms, are too quick to turn to tech as an avoidance mechanism for addressing process and culture. Uh, why is that? Well, what's the root cause of that? Throwing tech at a problem rather than taking a step back and figuring out what really we needs to be addressed. Because we don't have time to put in the, the hard, deep work, and we're hoping that tech is a shortcut, that tech procurement can solve problems we have and that the procuring the tech is the hardest part of it. Like that's what we hope. It's not, it's almost never true, but it would be really nice if it was. Your article was focused on contract lifecycle management, CLM, but I feel like any kind of tech you want to implement can be inserted into the article. But you specifically to CLM, you say a lot of times contracting process is messy, unorganized, but it's because no one was responsible for that. They were just getting the work done day to day and busy. So how do you address that? So like, what would you suggest to somebody that acknowledges this? Hey, we want to fix this problem. How do we fix a contracting process for contract X? What's the first step you'd have somebody take? Unfortunately, the first question you have to ask is, are we fixing it just for contract X? First, you need to zoom out and have an understanding of kind of how many different contracting processes you have going on why they're why they're different like where do they diverge do they, do they diverge from the point of origin through execution and where they're stored in obligation management where do they diverge and converge and why and it would start with a general understanding of the overall contracting landscape within the organization then there would be some kind of sorting of contracts but volume and importance, you know, there are some 
low-level contracts that have an enormous amount of volume and therefore uh, take quite a bit of bandwidth. And then there's some really important contracts that you want to pay attention to. And then you have to decide what kind of resources you have available to tackle whatever deficiencies you've identified at a high level. And those deficiencies can be turnaround time. It can be how labor intensive the contracts are. It can be the quality of the contracts themselves. Like where did we, where did these contracts come from? Are they any good? And then you have to start making choices about uh, what resource you have available to do deep dives on, on what. And while you want a general picture of your current state, again, that broad view of your contracting landscape, it's a very good idea to have a target operating model of what a ideal end state would be for that landscape. Between those two, you're going to be making a lot of, a lot of choices about what to tackle first. And it's going to be context specific as to whether it's content, whether it's workflow. And technology can help with some of these in some places, but you should never start with tech. Again, it's the mapping of your current state, figuring out a future state. It's not like I invented gap analysis. Like this is just kind of process 101. And, and look, if you have the interest, but not the bandwidth, it's going to be hard because no matter what you do, you're going to need to devote some bandwidth to it. If you have the interest, but not the expertise, like the process piece of it is beyond your expertise, then you can find help with that. It's still going to require bandwidth. It's still going to require attention and interaction with whoever it is that you, you've hired to do the work. You point out that it's generally not a good idea, probably maybe never a good idea just to throw tech at this problem. You got to take a step back, really look at your processes and figure out what you're trying to address. But in the article, you say that procuring tech may be easier than addressing problems with process and culture. Now, you've already alluded to the time issue that, you know, you got to have time. You just got to step back, stop billing hours, stop doing your, you know, your day job to kind of analyze the situation. But is that just it? Is it just only time? Or is there other reasons that it's people are avoiding, you know, looking at the process and the culture and saying, hey, let's talk to tech vendor A? Yeah, I mean, it's it's not just time. I mean, I'll... A lot of it is because it is cross-functional. If you're inside a corporation, the contracts don't exist for the legal department. They exist for the business. And the legal department is just one stakeholder in the contracting process. And you're probably addressing things on where they originate, you know, working with, say, the sales team or the procurement team or whomever. Because again, there's lots of different kinds of contracts. And this can be workflow, how things move from one place to the other, but it's also about decisions that get made. I mean, what are salespeople allowed to commit to or not allowed to commit to? Is there a playbook in that regard? Do we have discipline around the playbook? Now you get into all kinds of cross-functional and, and cultural issues that have process components, but aren't strictly about process. They also end up being about politics and about important business decisions about, for example, the business's risk tolerance and what the risk profile looks like. All of these are vitally important. None of them are um, easy to solve. And again, tech can play a role, but simply buying tech will not solve 
any of those problems. And if you buy tech without first addressing those problems, you're not going to know what to do with it. And that's what you say, better not to do it at all than, than do it poorly, which leads to another point you make in the article. You say, after an organizational trauma because of a bad implementation of tech, it's really hard to, to go back and try to convince people to, to keep changing, to consider new tech. In your experience, when that's happened, what have you done to try to have people go back and dip their toe back in the pool and start thinking about other tech and get past the bad experience they had with it? Oftentimes, you have to go somewhere else and do something else with someone else. And, and I'm not talking about leaving uh, the company, per se. You solve different problems for different people. And successful projects then help you build credibility with the stakeholders who were burned. Also, time starts to heal wounds. Since the problem wasn't fixed, the problem continues. And therefore, the pain also builds up and pain is a big driver of, and so if you wait, you show success with other things, the pain builds up and often you have stakeholder turnover. Some new people come in, then you revisit it. But I'm not aware of any kind of counselor who can come in and heal the tech-related trauma instantly so that people are, are gung-ho to go at it again. <laughs> go back to process and culture. It seems to me that process is probably easier to tweak than culture. As we know, culture eats everything for breakfast. It eats strategy for breakfast. It eats execution for breakfast. So what do you, what do, you do there? You, you go into a company, you're consulting them, you're trying to get them to, to kind of take a look at how they're doing stuff, make, make it more efficient. If, if you're butting heads against a culture that maybe isn't so open to this, what do you do? How do you, how do you try to turn the tides? Oftentimes, if the culture is not amenable to it, you fail. So, and that's important to say, there's a certain point at which there is nothing to be done. If there are people in positions of power who are simply unpersuadable, then they're unpersuadable. Now there's lots of different methods to try and persuade people and different messaging resonates with different stakeholders. Uh, some people want to know how it's going to make them, the company more money. Some people want to know how it's going to make them look good. Some people want to know how it's going to make their life easier. Some people want to know how it's going to make their team's life easier. Some people want to know how it's going to make their customers happy. Some want to know how it's going to make sales easier. I mean, and understanding who your stakeholders are and what messages resonate with them is part of mastering context. And if you want to operate well within an organization, you need to master context. And there's there's lots of different contexts within an organization, lots of different stakeholders with their own, you know, personalities, peccadillos, idiosyncrasies, incentives is a huge one. Understanding the incentives that, that people have, what their KPIs are, both formal and informal, how they're judged. And that's very, very difficult as an outsider, which is why so much of this cannot be purely outsourced. You can get support for lots of this on outsourcing. Like if you want someone who is expert in contracting process and playbooks, like I can make a recommendation for that. But if you want someone who has mastered your organizational context, unless we get really lucky and someone just left and fits that description, it's highly unlikely that you're gonna find that out in the marketplace. All right, Casey, appreciate your time today. Uh, people want to get a hold of you, find your articles, where do they go? Lexfusion.com. 
you can contact me through that and we post all the articles there since they're published all over the place. The one you're talking about is on Three Geeks, where I have an ongoing series on value storytelling and how to center business value in making our pitch for more resources in service of the enterprise, but write a lot of different places. So lexfusion.com, again, to contact me and to find what I'm writing. Really appreciate your time. Thank you for having me on. Yeah, thanks for coming back on, Casey. It's always good. Always good. So that's all we have for today. I appreciate you listening. If you want to get a hold of me, you can find me on LinkedIn or email me at cmain at percipient.co. That's C-M-A-I-N at percipient.co. If you want to subscribe, you can find us on most major podcast platforms. If you like us enough, I hope you give us a favorable review. Until next time, this has been Technically Legal.